Amen. 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 You guys can be seated if you can. It's one of those moments, maybe one of those mornings where you can't. I want to read a quote for you. Uh, I don't don't want to tell you much about it, but I just want you to hear this. Uh, As we've been talking about making disciples, we've been examining what are the habits, what are the practices of, and we've looked at giving your life to Christ. Um, We've looked at real time with God. We've looked at uh, what it means to act in obedience, what it means to commit to accountability. And today we're going to look at what does it mean to engage our world. What does it mean for us to take being a disciple of Jesus and to be a part of this broken world? Because we're not called to just exist in this room, are we? We're called to exist in this broken world, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in and around this broken world. But I want to read this quote. It's on the screen for you this morning. It says this, Nothing is so much needed today in the rehabilitation of the broken world as a faith that still holds towards a higher divine goal that leads to more than mere social, economic, and political adjustment. Now let me explain that, what's kind of contained in there. The author is saying what the world needs is not simply a moral change, not simply an economic change, not a political change. What the world is desperately needing is people that have a faith attached to a divine relationship that would impact this world. Now, what's ironic about this is this was not written in 2018 or, or two, 1978. It was written in 1922 and was in the New York Times article entitled The Supremacy of the Soul Life. Now, it's a long day since the New York Times would proclaim this. But what they're proclaiming here is there is a brokenness in this world and there is a need for something far greater than just a little tweaking and adjustment of the broken world. And what we must realize is that this statement here, the rehabilitation of a broken world as a faith that holds towards a higher divine goal, that's us. That's us as followers of Jesus Christ, committing our lives to Jesus Christ, giving our lives to Jesus Christ, agreeing with and coming alongside with the commission of Jesus to say, go and make disciples, baptizing, teaching, growing, multiplying, and changing the world. That's us. What the world desperately needs, although it pushes back, although it seems to resist it and want nothing to do with it, What it is desperately needing is truth. What it is desperately needing is hope. Not found in a political party. Pick your side and go for it. Not found in a new program, although there are great ones. But found in a group of people who have a hope that's far greater than this world. If you don't believe that we live in a broken world, let me give you my cell phone for a day. And you read the texts and the conversations. And you'll agree it's broken. You'll agree there's a hope. You'll agree there's a need for a hope, a need for a transforming, a need to be engaged in the world. A need to transform the world. In Acts chapter 17, there's the church, the history of the church is recorded in the book of Acts, the early church. 
Uh, if you're not familiar with that, the book of Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus, and he leaves a purpose and a mission to the disciples, those who have learned to become more like Jesus, live with Jesus, and he says, I'm empowering you the Holy Spirit. I'm giving you a command. I'm giving you a promise. Here's what I want you to go do to reach the world, Jerusalem, Judea, the ends of the earth. I want you to engage the world. I want you to be a part of and go into the world with the truth that I've equipped you with, with the power that I've given you. And the early church starts to speak, and they start to impact, and they start to see things change, but they also experience great persecution. We explored on Wednesday evening, Acts chapter 6, a gentleman by the name of Stephen who had spoken radically, beautifully, the history of the people of Israel, but also the truth of Jesus, and he became the first martyr. But even in that moment, people could not deny that he had something greater. There was something about him that they could not deny. And there standing on the sideline was a guy by the name of Saul. And Saul was holding the cloaks of the people that stoned Stephen. Saul was later convicted by the Holy Spirit, by Jesus. Saul was a persecutor of Christians. Hatred for Christians. Hatred for followers of Jesus. Radically experienced transformation through Jesus Christ, committed his life to not simply becoming a follower, but becoming a leader and stepping into and going place to place, town to town, city to city, proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. And Paul had a great impact because of his history, because of his training. He could step into places that many people could not step into. And in Acts chapter 17, it's one of those moments he goes into a town called Thessalonica, an important town, a prominent town, and Paul does what Paul does as a converted persecutor of Christians, now a follower of Jesus. He goes into the religious institution of the day, the Jewish synagogue. And he goes into the synagogue, and he does this in the towns that he goes because he's trained, but also he knows the epicenter of the Jewish faith is there. So he's going to go right in the middle of it, right into the heart of it, and speak the truth. And Acts chapter 17 records this for us. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from scriptures. So three Sundays, three, three Sabbaths, he gathers with them and says, hey guys, let me, let me just tell you the truth from scripture, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, he may have had more sermon points than that. He may have had a poem. He may have had a funny story. I don't know, but we don't, we don't get that evidence in Scripture. What we have is evidence that where he would go, he would proclaim the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and he would say, this Christ that I'm proclaiming to you in this synagogue to the religious leaders of the day, he is the Christ. Now, the Jewish community, in large part, did not want this to be the truth. They didn't want a Messiah that had been crucified, a cruel death. They didn't want a Messiah that was not a political leader that had left. They wanted one in person that would rise to leadership and fame. And Paul says, guys, contrary to whatever you think, this Christ that I'm proclaiming to you, he is the Christ. Verse 4. He's got some details here that we need to wrestle with and see. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. So some of the Jewish leaders were persuaded, confronted, convicted, joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. 
Now, what you need to understand, if you don't know this, these two groups did not get along. They did not consider themselves both worthy. If you go back to Acts chapter 15, one of the earliest disagreements and discussions in the early church is, do we preach the gospel for the Jews or for the Greeks, or the Greeks or for the Jews? And they come out and make a decision. We preach it to all mankind. So here we're beginning to see evidence. Jewish people are giving their lives to Christ. Greeks are giving their lives to Christ. And something radical is also happening. As many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Now, this is, this is radical transformation. You, please get this. This is not just a random detail that God has allowed for us to have in his word. It is evident that the gospel, that so many of the people in the religious systems of that day, the religious system was not for the women to have a voice in, was not to have a part in. And here Paul is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus that it's for everyone, for all men, all women, Jews, Greeks. It's for everybody to be confronted with, to be convicted by. And who was given their lives? Jews, Greeks, women. There is a radical movement taking place. And it's impacting every facet of society. They decide, the Jewish community decide that This could not continue the way that it was. So the Jews, verse 5, says they were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. I don't know the last time you've ever called somebody the wicked man of the rabble. All right? Here's what it is. They went to this epicenter of the city, grabbed some wicked people who had nothing to do with this conversation, right? They're looking for rioters. Hey, guys, we'll give you the picket sign. We'll give you whatever we need. Just come with us and yell and scream. We'll tell you what to yell. We'll tell you what you're supposed to say. Just come with us. They conjured up naysayers, witnesses that were not witnesses. They were going to take them to the leadership, the Roman leadership, and try to silence this movement. They formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason. We'll look at him in a few minutes, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. We can't find any credible witnesses, so we'll just go to the middle of the city. We'll grab some guys. Hey, guys, say this, do this, go with us, yell, scream, and holler, just the right time. We just need some extra voices. Now, this was not over. The early believers didn't burn down buildings and say, see, we're powerful. They didn't come into towns and eradicate the leadership of the people. They were brought up in this moment. Why? Because Paul was preaching, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. This scripture, this this Jesus that is from scripture that I persuade, that I share with you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. That's why they're being brought. And the Jewish people, they're losing the leadership. They're losing their influence on society their reach. And then they couldn't find Paul and Silas, so verse 6 tells us this, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. This guy, they're at his house, and they're acting. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Not truth. Saying that there is no other king. There is another king, Jesus. 
And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. They appealed to the city authorities who were Roman by making an attachment to a quote, a conversation about Caesar. That wasn't what Paul was proclaiming in the synagogue from Scripture. That's not what he was pushing against. But they appealed to the city leadership. They're Roman, so let's make it a Roman accusation. They'll defend us. But they knew that this group, the followers of the way, as would have been referenced in the book of Acts, were transforming communities. And they have come to our town. And we need to silence them. That's what they're thinking. They've come to our town. They've come to our place. Now understand something. Paul and Silas, uh, they didn't move around like we would move around today. I mean, you know this. They didn't have cell phones. They weren't tweeting and texting their next village they were going to, right? They weren't posting their world tour about which village they would go to next. They would go, they would preach, they would teach, they would preach, they would teach. Sometimes they got ran out of town. Sometimes they got persecuted out of town. Other times God convicted them to leave town, and they left. And they preached, and they taught, and they were confronted, convicted, persecuted, and they left. But understand something. Something radical was happening in the towns even when they left. People that were followers of Jesus were beginning to transform their towns because now they were beginning to care for people in their culture that were never cared before. They're giving children and women, the disabled, the outcast. They're going to the far reaches of society saying, Jesus is for you. He can transform you. This Messiah is your Messiah. They're beginning a movement and it's starting from the ground up and people are beginning to speak and talk and the leadership is feeling threatened. They're going, man, if this thing continues to grow, we might be outed. So let's try to silence them. And let's go before the leadership of town and say, these people who have turned the world upside down have come to Thessalonica. I thought about just reading that verse and going home. Because all week I've been thinking about this verse and that statement. These men have turned the world upside down. You are a follower of Jesus. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you are a disciple of Jesus. You're a part of this same group of people. But what I had to ask of myself this week is if I was brought before a group of friends and people in Thomasville or Davidson County, would the accusation be made of me? Hey, this guy, he's preaching the truth of Jesus and it's turning the world upside down. Would anybody make that statement of me? Would anybody make that statement of us 
Let's just make it a little bit larger, a little bit more palatable maybe. It sounds a little safer when we put all of us in there together. Would, would anybody write about, not for popularity's sake, not for us to be able to write home about it, but would anybody comment out in our society, out in the neighborhoods that we live that are broken, that are falling apart, that are filled with addictions and filled with struggles, would anybody out there go, 3993 Old Highway 29, Rich Fork Baptist Church, they're turning the world upside down. Because that's what we're called to do. You say, well, Pastor, that was the early church. It was easier back then. No, it was not easier. They don't have social media and the people pushing against Christianity and about faith. Trust me, they had greater opposition. 90% of the population in most of these towns were huge adversaries to the message of Jesus Christ. And many of the countries and many of the places would proclaim in this era, if you proclaim Jesus, you die. Not you can hang out in society, you die. So, so let's don't pose and say, man, it must have been so much easier back then. I mean, Paul was there, the early apostles were there, and they're teaching. It must have been so much easier. I would argue it was way more difficult. Public gatherings such as these would have been unheard of. Opportunities to step out into our world and speak the gospel would have been silenced. In 600 AD, a non-Christian historian said this about the church. He said, they live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they're, not, but they're citizens of heaven. They're obedient to the laws, yet they live on a level that transcends the law. Christians, they love all men, but all men persecute them. They're condemned because they are not understood, but they are put to death, but they are raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is how they respond to abuse. Deference, their response to insult. For all the good they do, they receive punishment. But even then, they rejoice, though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet no one can explain the reason for their hatred. We could substitute. Could we substitute ourselves from 680 to 2000 and say some of those same things of ourselves? Those are people that flip the world upside down. Those are people that impact culture. Those are people that engage their communities and shape them. In our mission statements, on the sign when you drive by this afternoon on your way home. Shaping our community by sharing the grace of Jesus Christ. That is an audacious statement. I don't know if you realize that. Shaping this community, engaging this community, not by a program, not by a pastor. We're not shaping it by an announcement. We're not shaping it by a budget number. We're shaping it by the grace of Jesus. That's our desire.
That's our desire to shift, to turn, to be considered people who turn this world upside down. Engaging our community requires us to be unified disciples who are committed to maturity, committed to modeling a transformed life. Now I'm going to use myself as a litmus test, all right, this morning, because I can, I can just use this one and I won't go above or beyond this. You understand what I'm trying to say here. Um, I've been a believer for, uh, let's do the math, 38 years, all right? 38, 39 years. Some of you are like, oh, you're old, all right? Whatever. I don't care. It's age, all right? 38 years. How many of you have been a believer longer than 38 years? Some of you are like, dude, if I do that, everybody's going to know how old I am. It's okay. 38 years. 38 years. All right, there's quite a few of you in the room. How many of you have been a believer 10 to 25 years in that range? 10, 25. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. All right? Now, there's still a lot of folks that are below that, maybe sandwiched somewhere in between there. But if we ever get to the point, if I ever get to the point 38 years, 39 years down the road, if you get to the point 10 years down the road where we say or we proclaim, man, I think I got this thing figured out. I think I've become as much of a disciple as I can be. Then we're wrong. If we want to continue to engage this community, it requires of us to be unified and committing to maturity, committing to modeling a transformed life. And it happens for me at 47 years old. It happens for you. At 10, 12, 15, 60, at 70. Committing together that we're going to continue to be disciples who learn to become more like Jesus. And our lives be transformed. Our communities be transformed. I love this in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is really outlining the, the giftedness of the local church. So I'm going to read a, a rather lengthy passage of scripture and then unpack it kind of quickly, all right, for you this morning. I just want you to see this, that, that we, are, we, are, we are put together in such a way, the church is, for us to be unified in purpose, unified in mission, and transformed in our lives. Paul outlines this for us multiple places, but here's one. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So certain offices, certain roles to equip the church for building up the body of Christ until we all attain, what? The unity of the faith and of the knowledge of our Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. That's a continued growth so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. You hear this? There's a maturity taking place from times of teaching, from being discipled, from leaders discipling, being a part of lives. There's a maturity taking place so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, but crap by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is Christ. From which the whole body, so as we grow in Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which it is, it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now here, here's what I want you to just quickly see, to, to kind of go along with that point. You can dig into this later on. 
We are committed to maturity, committed to modeling a transformed life. Here's what happens in this passage. Spiritually gifted and called teachers and leaders pour into the church, into us as followers. We pour into the church. The church grows in its understanding of its faith, grows in its moments of being tossed back and forth by this world, grows to spiritual maturity, enters into the broken world, communicates the gospel of Jesus Christ through our individual giftedness. We engage the world. So we pour in, we grow in our faith, we are transformed by our faith, we enter into this broken world, not tossed back and forth, we're no longer children, we're growing in our faith for the purpose of leading people to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're all equipped and we work way better together when we're unified in mission. When we're unified in the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. The world is searching. And know this, guys. It will not tolerate people who claim Jesus as their eternal hope, but has not transformed their daily lives. The world has no time for us. A broken world has no time for us to proclaim a heavenly ticket for eternity, but an unchanged life for everyday life. We will make no disciples. We will not persuade if we simply proclaim eternity with our mouths, but our lives are not transformed. The early church did not turn the world upside down by behaving like the world. The early church transformed the world. The early church turned the world upside down because they did things and said things that were counter-culture, that were counter the religious systems, that were counter the conversations. The early church did not transform culture and impact politics and care of women and children by remaining the same as the world, although they did impact many of those facets throughout history. The early church engaged the world with truth and love and commitment to the teachings of Jesus and with a desire to see their world turned upside down. And it requires us to go. Now I know, if I'm not careful, this sounds like a huge pep talk, right? To engage your world, go. Engage your world, go. Engage your world, transform the world. Engage your world, go, 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 right? But here's where I want us to zoom in, not at the conclusion of this series, but as we leave this room. We began uh, back in January with a question, who is one person that you would desire to see become a disciple of Jesus? Instead of thinking, how do I or how does Rich Fork transform the world in a big picture? What if we each start individually and we acknowledge that we turn the world upside down one disciple at a time? What if we acknowledge, we 
We desire to see the world turned upside down for the glory of God, for the fame of who Jesus is. We desire for people to look at us and say, man, you guys have, you, you've turned your marriage upside down. You've changed the rules. Yeah, Jesus has. Hey, you've turned your workplace upside down. You've turned your lunch conversations at my school table. You've turned things upside down. What's happening? One disciple at a time. One conversation. One relationship. Who are you burdened by to make a disciple this year? This year. We'll come back to that in just a minute. You got you to see this guy, all right? Acts chapter 17, real quick. Verse 6, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about him. He's in verse 5, verse 6 later on. There's a guy in here by the name of Jason. He had, they attacked the house of Jason. When they could not find him, they dragged Jason. Um, I, I did a little bit of research. and did a little bit of exploration. I, 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 I did a Google search for Jason, sermons on Jason. Two came up. You know how big the internet is? Do you know how many sermons it can search? I was just curious. How many people have ever preached on Jason? Now, there were some sub-little things there going on, but two, two. You search for Paul, you break the internet, all right? Very few of us, very few people in the world will ever have the same impact as a missionary and evangelist as a Paul. But every one of us can be a Jason. Who was Jason? Jason welcomed the believers. He equipped the believers. He encouraged the believers. He supported the believers. He brought the believers into his home. He put himself in danger. And nobody wrote a book about him. Nobody preaches a sermon series on good old Jason. But Jason stood in front of the leaders of the world in that community that day. And they said, these guys, Jason, and his friends, the ones that Jason is letting them hang out at his house, they have changed the world. You see, this morning, you, you're called and you're equipped, as Ephesians chapter 4, those verse 15 and 16, you're, you're equipped in a way that I'm not equipped. You're involved in relationships with people that I will never meet. You're encountering folks in different facets, in different counties, in different towns. And you may not be an Apostle Paul. But you are equipped in your own way to be a Jason, to be whatever it looks like in your community, to turn your world upside down one disciple at a time. As a husband and wife, maybe your spouse. As a single person, maybe your future spouse. As a mom or dad, it may be your kids to get started. As a grandparent, it may be that wayward grandchild that would never walk into this facility. As a co-worker, it may be that boss. No amens, all right? As a teacher, it may be a specific student that God burdens you with. 
that in a public setting is a hard place to share, but God burdens you and you begin to pray. You begin to ask God, open the door, open the window, open a conversation as students, people that you encounter, that you're with, that you'd say, God, would you just zoom in my life to impact this person's life so that they might look at me and me be able to turn them back to Jesus and say, man, what's going on with you? What's turned your world upside down? This Jesus that I proclaim to you is the Christ. And I'm his disciple. And I'm burdened for you. One disciple at a time. What an incredible calling. You know God doesn't need us, right? He doesn't need us to reach his people. He can do that on his own, but he gives us the calling of the Great Commission. He gives us the calling to to be a part of something greater. To go make disciples. Baptizing, teaching, making, repeating. Who is that one person that God has burdened you with that they will become a disciple of Jesus?